and welcome to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on August 20th and I'm joined today in the studio by Darcy Drought to talk about Korean identity, North Korean refugee integration and what a united Korea might look like one day. Darcy Drought is a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Science at the Johns Hopkins University. She's currently in Seoul as a Korean Foundation Dissertation Fieldwork Fellow and a visiting scholar at the Yonsei University Department of Political Science. That's a long sentence. Drought's research comprises U.S. Northeast Asia relations, policy processes, and elite networks, of which I hope I one day could be one. Korean national uh, elite, not a network. Korean national (laughs) identity and citizenship and migration studies. Darcy, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I want us to talk today about the changing face of South Korea, and then we can sort of fold that into uh, what North Korea and South Korea might look like in the future. This is obviously a topic that's relevant to... uh, to any discussion of unification. So when Korea was divided in 1945, would it be fair to say that it was pretty close to 99% ethnically and culturally homogenous? It was really quite homogenous and, in many senses, the archetypical ethno-nation state. Right. now, And, of course, Korea has this word uh, minjok, which uh, can be used for nation, sort of an ethno-nation grouping, right. but also it sometimes is used to refer to the, the whole of Korea, so right. the state as as the nation or the nation as the state. Right, correct. Yeah, the, I mean, again, this is really the, for studies of modern nation-state, Korea, South Korea, North Korea, and different variations, they're both really, you know, typical, archetypical uh, cases of those. Right, now we know that there's, there's a myth uh, in Korea of uh, this uh, single undiluted bloodline stretching 5,000 years from Tangun to the modern Koreans of today. But of course, you know, throughout Koreans' history, there have been people who have come to the peninsula from elsewhere around the world, but they've all been culturally and eventually, uh, you know, through marriage and, uh, and settlement, integrated into the Korean ethnos over time, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you look back at Korean history, certainly people have, peoples have been coming from China, from Mongolia, um, from Japan in different ways. I mean, even an Indian princess married into the, to the Korean, uh, royal bloodline. And so it's been something that's been happening, I think, more at the ad hoc and individual level. Um, that's a different sense than the contemporary nation state with very static controlled borders. Now, were there before 1945 any significant ethnic minorities living in Korea uh, apart from, obviously, the Japanese colonialists. Actually, if you think about before, especially during the, the Japanese colonial era, it really was a great time of a time of great migration throughout all of East Asia. Um, the Japanese Empire did move, uh, often forcibly, peoples throughout their empire or their targeted empire. Um, and then there were people that were responding to all of these divisions. So you have Chinese people that had been settling in, 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 in the South, or in the Korean peninsula for a while. Um, tens of thousands of them at the, by the time the peninsula was divided. Um, and then the policies that dealt with them kind of differently after then. Yeah. I, I've seen numbers of anywhere between 50 to up perhaps even a hundred thousand right, uh, exactly. ethnic Chinese here who uh, spoke their own, uh, dialects of, of Chinese. Exactly. Exactly. And there's Chinese schools that were set up. There's still Chinese schools in, in both South and North Korea. This is actually that the Chinese and Chinese Koreans living in South Korea in particular has been something that's consistent, has ebbed and flowed, certainly, but it's something that's been consistent and I think is, is often under-discussed when thinking about migration and movement and ethnicity, multi-ethnicity in, in Korea. It's interesting in, uh, in Myeongdong, uh, next to right. the gigantic behemoth uh, People's Republic of China embassy, right. there is still a, a Chinese school that is uh, loyal, shall I say, to the Republic of China, to that's Taiwan. Right. That's right. And they're right next door to each yeah, other, but yeah. uh, obviously not talking to each other because, um, you know, PRC people wouldn't be sending their kids That's to a right. Taiwanese I mean, school. oftentimes these sorts of things, you know, national politics get played out in local ways abroad. Right. So you have PRC and ROC uh, conflicts happening in in South Korea, certainly. You know, North Korea, South Korea politics are playing abroad in Japan, for that example. Too. It's something that I think people get involved in, whether they whether they want to or not, once they leave. Now, the, the word used for uh, ethnic Chinese living overseas is uh, hwagyo, or at least that's the Korean word right. uh, for them. Uh, do we know much about uh, hwagyo in uh, North Korea? I believe in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of policies that kind of pushed them out, um, particularly as Kim Il-sung was kind of tightening uh, the borders. Um, state capacity was growing, national rhetoric was growing, and the, the hwagyo, the, the, the Chinese living in North Korea, were a kind of complicated aspect of that, particularly as Chinese-North Korean relations were changing. 
Yeah, I think it's a, a fascinating topic. Actually, when I was in North Korea this year in April, we went to the International Friendship Exhibition in Myohyangsan, and I saw a piece of pottery that had been presented as a gift to Kim Il-sung by the president of the National Hwagyo Association of North Korea as a kind of a, an official recognition of, you guys are allowed to have your own association. So, you know, thanks for the gift to me. And there it was in a glass display case. So it's, it's definitely real. And uh, uh, I've looked at an article by, uh, well, one by Andrei Lankov and one by Fyodor Tetitsky, that say that there are now only about 5,000 Hwagyo registers living in North Korea, but many of them live in China and just come to North Korea either right, for trading right, or to continue right. their registration. It's very interesting. Uh, so what about in South Korea? How many resident foreigners do we have here now? The most recent statistic is is almost just shy of, of 2 million, okay. which put a little bit differently, it's about 3% of the population. So it's something that's actually rapidly grown over the past 10 or 15 years. It's gone right. from 1% to 3%. Although it's been growing relative to its population, if you look at other countries, it still is not really a country of immigration. The UK has, I think, about 6% of the population are foreign-born or foreign nationals. And then in the United States, which is, is a country of purported immigration, um, it's it, it, the most recent statistic is about 15%. Mm. So it still is something that's relatively new and relatively small and more or less visible depending on where you go in South Korea. And what are the largest groups of foreigners living here? Right, the largest group is actually Chinese nationals. Okay, um, and then which includes? Part, yeah, which includes Korean Chinese. In fact, Korean Chinese make up about 70% of those those Korean or those Chinese nationals. So it's it's interesting to think about how citizenship, nationality in a sense, yeah. right? Ethnicity, right? This idea of being like a shared bloodline across borders, which yep. we can get into a little bit later. And then them not being full Korean because they're also born in China or go back and forth in China or just simply have Chinese citizenship or Chinese parents. Right. These are the uh, the, the, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of uh, Korean people who exactly. moved into Manchuria exactly. during the Japanese colonial exactly. period. Right. Exactly. And ended up on the wrong side of the border when, when lines were drawn, I suppose. Eh? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I know there was a, a discussion in the 1990s about whether, Korea, whether South Korea should give the option of citizenship to ethnic Koreans from the diaspora, and that right. included uh, those from the former Soviet Union, the, right. the Koryo Sara, uh, those from uh, China, uh, the Chosun Jok, and those from uh, Japan as well. Yeah, it's actually a really, I think, important part of thinking about Korean national identity and Korea's relations to its neighbors and how it sees these different aspects of this, the diaspora. I mean, this debate happens, but it's actually still really relevant today, both in terms of policy toward these different groups as well as kind of social attitudes. So there's some um, interesting both academic and popular work that's available that looks about looks at how visa categories in particular mm. that are available to these different groups are different or had been historically different. So if you look at in the mid-2000s, the Chinese Koreans um, actually had a different visa category mm. than Jimmy um, Gyopo or, you know, Koreans that parts of the Korean diaspora that were living in quote unquote the West, um, right. largely the United States and Europe. And that was taken to, there was a group of Korean Chinese who took it to the courts to contest it and say they were part of it. It has to do with a lot of like institutional configurations that were, were done for political purposes. Um, and there's a lot of work that gets into this. That's something, something that we can discuss. But right. suffice it to say, for the purpose of this conversation, the Korean state, the South Korean state does actually look at these different populations quite differently mm. in both cultural and social, as well as like economically active populations. Now, what happens to uh, to children of two non-Korean citizens who are born in South Korea? Do they receive Korean no. citizenship? No, they don't. So Korea is a country of, of, of blood bloodline citizenship. You're sanguinous, exactly. uh, as they say in the Latin. Exactly. Right. So you are whatever, uh, whatever your parents That's exactly were. right. Actually, and until... Not too long ago, it was until your father. So a lot uh -huh. of it was quite patrilineal. Some of that has been changing now, particularly as there has been a lot of uh, new patterns in, in, in marriage between Koreans and non-Koreans. Yeah, I want to quote something that the late President Norman Hyun said uh, back in uh, April 20, uh, 2006. So what are we, 13 years ago? He said it was, uh, quote, irreversible uh, that South Korea had already transitioned to a multiracial, multicultural society. Now, when he said that, uh, what do you think he meant? It's interesting. I have been doing a lot of research on this as part of my dissertation while here in, in South Korea. And it was something to me that was really quite striking, because if you look at, as I mentioned before, the statistics, the foreign-born population was actually, I mean, it was less than 1%. It was very, mm. very small. And it, and it wasn't really part of the discourse. This idea of multicultural was not a popular issue. It was something that was 
very, very niche. But it, at the but same it, time, but it was in the post Heinz Ward era. Exactly. Actually, these all things were put together. So Heinz huh. Ward was became uh, to the forefront. Well, first of all, because of his fame in the United States as MVP in the Super Bowl, it's he was in many senses a watershed moment that was embraced by the Korean government as an exemplar of what what we would call bright in English biracial Koreans mm-hmm. are contributing to international society to international achievements. I think that what the president meant at that time, or as I understand it in my research, is he was very, very much, because of his background, um, he was very much interested in minority issues. And so this idea of um, you know, half Koreans that were living in South Korea or abroad was yet another minority that he himself um, had invested a lot of political capital into changing the policies and changing the discussion around it. Do you think it was true then in 2006? Was, was President Nord jumping the gun a bit when he said that Korea had already transitioned to a multiracial, multicultural society? I think you could parse it two ways. I, I think to call it a, a multiracial, multicultural society does seem a bit premature considering it was quite a small point of the demographics of South Korea. And it really wasn't part of the popular understanding of the country. I mean, even today, the idea of a multicultural society is a contentious one. Um, it's, it is it is fairly marginal. At the same time, I think that in order for these sorts of issues to be put on the agenda, it was a kind of political statement or a policy directive statement to pay more attention to it, a recognition of those who had not necessarily been recognized in the past. So it was a bit premature, Statistically, if you look at the population, Mm. but if you look at it, a kind of policy planning, it probably came at the right moment as as Korea was was really interacting with the world in different ways. Do you find that that it's become more acceptable uh, in South Korea, that the the concepts of multicultural and multiracial are more acceptable now? There's some interesting public opinion data on this by our friends Chris Green, Hmm. uh, Steve Denny, and Peter Ward. They did a survey research, and they found that 58% of South Koreans are generally favorable toward a multicultural future. Uh, in South Korea. So that's actually really surprising considering the strong, what we would call maybe an ethnocentric narrative of the nation. So I think there is some change. However, at the day-to-day, there are anecdotes that maybe Korea isn't not necessarily ready for it. A bit of nimbyism, not in my family, not in my backyard. Mm. Um, There are a lot of social concerns about or stereotyping about crime rates and foreigners, perpetration of crime, about uh, taking jobs, these sorts of things. So it's different than it was in the past, but South Koreans at least say that they're they're more accepting of difference. Have you seen any survey results or opinion polls on um, the direct question, you know, uh, would you be in favor of your son or daughter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the World Value Survey, which runs every, I think, six or seven years, they have uh, batteries of questions that they ask across the world. And this type of question is asked. Things like, how would you feel about your daughter or your son marrying a foreigner? How would you feel about a foreign family living in your neighborhood? How would you feel about a foreign family living in your building? And so what we what the survey produces, and the numbers have gone down over time, in indicating a, a general more acceptance over time. But the, the, the general idea is that the closer it is to you as an individual, to your family, the less willing they are to accept foreigners. Mm-hmm. So the numbers are still quite low on support for that? Relatively lower. So the idea of a multicultural society is something that's really large, right? But the idea of someone marrying your daughter or living in your building is is quite low. Okay, now I'm going to read you a little extract from an article in the Chosen Ilbo, and this is uh, from May 17, 2006. So just a a few weeks after President Noor made those remarks about South Korea having irreversibly transitioned to a multiracial, multicultural society. The North delegation leader, Major General Kim Yong-chol, started off an unfortunate thread by quipping, since the climate in the South is warmer, the farmers must be hard at work. His South Korean counterpart, Major General Han Min-gu, replied, the population of the farming communities is actually falling and many bachelors from such areas marry women from Mongolia, Vietnam and the Philippines. The North Korean Major Kim reportedly grimaced and snapped, our nation has always considered its pure lineage to be of great importance. I am concerned that our singularity will disappear. Instead of contradicting him, the South Korean delegation said such dilution of the bloodline was, quote, but a drop of ink in the Han River, adding that this would cause no problems if we all lived together. But this failed to mollify the North Korean. Quote, since time immemorial, our nation has been a land of abundant beauty. Not even one drop of ink must be allowed to fall into the Han River, Kim thundered. What do you think about that? 
Is North Korea ready to be a multiracial, multicultural <laughs> no, society? No, certainly not. In fact, if you look at what North Korea says about its own population and about South Koreans, this is what, one example of it. But you can think of, you know, different media reports from coming from North Korea, different KCNA reports about how they describe South Korea um, as being corrupted in a way. They're not really ready for any sort of difference. And that includes, I think, the South Koreans' difference, mm. right? I think this quote is actually extremely interesting when you compare the idea of national identity and nationalisms between these two countries. Because you see in North Korea, as, as we and your listeners very well know, it is a very racialized version of what national identity is. And, and this pure bloodline is the very core of it, right? not that, polluting it. Why is that so important? In North Korea? I mean, that's an open question. I, I, I'm not really sure why. It's, I, I think anybody can, can venture on that. I, you can look at how it's built up its its regime legitimacy. It's how the leadership has passed from one father to the next. Mm. Um, it is about pure bloodline. And it's and it. I'm not sure if it's more of a, a cause or an effect. That's that's a really complicated question. Why do you think it's uh, why why do you think it's important to North Korea? I uh, I tend to subscribe to the uh, Myersian school yeah, of North Korea exactly. as, a, as as an ethno national state. So uh, uh, as you say, it's all about legitimacy. That without holding on to that bloodline and without that narrative of uh, we're a special people, we're exactly. a pure race, we're exactly. oppressed by the outsiders, invaded by everybody over the centuries. Um, and yes, yeah, so it all comes down to that. And, and I remember thinking how true that was when. In decades past, we were, like in the post-Korean War years, we saw some examples of North Koreans in Europe marrying European people and then forced to, to leave their partners and their children behind right. and uh, return to North That's Korea right. without their families, never to see them again. That's right. It is complicated, though, because we also see reports of foreigners marrying into North Korean families, and it's a complicated showcase. Can you think of some uh, outstanding examples of foreigners allowed to marry North Koreans? The the American GIs who have defected in North Korea? There was the the one who um, Jenkins he ended That's he, right, he, Jenkins. Well, yeah. he was he was allowed to marry a Japanese abductee and Dresnok who who died a couple of years ago. That's right. They weren't they weren't He they married were, a Bulgarian woman first right. and then later on I think he was he was allowed to marry when his first wife died he was allowed to marry uh, a, a second woman who was Biracial Korean. That's right. So it was. It was. She was deemed appropriate was already, for him. Yeah. So I can't think That's of any right. standout examples of where That's foreigners right. have actually been allowed to marry North. Korea. And I wonder if there's even a law in North Korea or just a custom. Like, for example, do any of or have any of the Hwagyeol married North Koreans and been allowed to uh, to stay married? Oh, I don't know the answer to that. That's yeah. really interesting. I'm going to have to <laughs> dig that, into that a bit more. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Put a bookmark <laughs> yeah. on that one. Yeah. To kind of build on the earlier point mm. of comparison, if you think about South Korea, we're seeing a lot of changes about who is acceptable, right? And it's both socially and politically, as your anecdote earlier showed right. in the, from the newspaper article. South Koreans are much, nowadays, much more flexible about what constitutes racial purity, perhaps moving toward a m more complicated uh, understanding of who can become Korean. Now, I think there still is a hierarchization based on racial background, based on sending country, and there is data that proves this, or suggests this rather. But this idea that foreign, not just foreigners, but racially dissimilar migrants can marry into South Koreans, can assimilate into South Korean culture, and somehow work their way a bit this national identity ladder. And so I think your example kind of proves that, 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 that these um, Southeast Asian marriage migrants in this case mm. are somehow not diluting the pool. Rather, the pool is actually, the terms of defining the pool is changing. It's not merely about blood. Do you think that that's just uh, simply a matter of pragmatics that um, so many men in, uh, in rural villages were unable to find themselves a Korean wife to marry, sure. so they began importing wives. Sure, and, uh, sure. and because Korea historically is a, a patrilineal and a, and a patriarchal exactly. society, importing women from from poorer Southeast Asian exactly. nations doesn't threaten the uh, There's hierarchy. a lot of ways to parse this. Um, so if you look at, if you read the kind of government strategies or plans about immigration, there is a kind of economic instrumentalist understanding of, of, of these foreigners. So you have particularly women and, and the marriage, the marriage migrants are statistically 70 to 80% you know, it depends on the year. Um, Seventy-eight percent of, of them are women. Yeah, a lot I'm, of them come I'm from. I'm one of the counterexamples. Yeah, you're one of the counterexamples, exactly. Yeah, and, and but the policies really are targeting that group, and I think that it, it, it emphasizes that there is a gender component, there's a national background component. So they're, they're largely coming from China. Um, 
or Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. And so there's this question of who is assimilatable, right? The policies that are supporting these groups of people, things like language learning, things like um, cultural uh, programming. You know, I've been visiting um, sites out in Ansan, which has a very high percentage of mm -hmm. foreigners, actually about 11% of the the um, residents in Ansan city are, are foreign born, which is, is as I mentioned before, higher than the 30% average. And there are some schools there where the major, majority of children are exactly. uh, yeah, foreign parents. Exactly. And, and so out there, I was visiting this um, multicultural support center, Damunwa Jiwon Center, and the classes are things like making kimchi, learning traditional Korean in instruments, in addition to you know practical language learning. And so all of the people that I saw there were women. And so there's a difference between that and then the labor migrants who come, who mm. are largely men. And so there is a, a large gender component to it. And so when you think about descent, the men are only present, per, per, um, permitted stays of up to just shy of five years. And that's in order to kind of dissuade them from claiming permanent residency. That's a different issue. Mm -hmm. But they're not marrying Korean women. The foreign women are marrying Korean men because descent, you know, if you think about the whole joke system, how family registries are, are, are traditionally uh, circumscribed, mm -hmm. it's through the men. In what ways is this similar to what we've seen in other countries? I remember back in the 1970s, Europe, Western Europe had a lot of these um, guest workers exactly. from countries like Turkey and Morocco exactly. who weren't intended to stay for long periods of time, but they often did. And they That's brought right. their families over. And, they, uh, and similar to Korea, their children weren't allowed to, ex uh, exactly. to, to take on the citizenship of the local country until later on in the piece. So is, is this just simply a rerun of a film we've seen before? It's an interesting question. And if you think, if you look at the government policies about the migrant workers, it is, in fact, a guest worker program. People are permitted relative short-term stays. There are some provisions once certain skills are acquired and um, including Korean language proficiency, um, a certain section of you know, semi-skilled or more skilled workers are allowed to apply for longer-term residency. But like the case of the guest workers in Turkey, they're, per they're prevented from family reunification, which is a very, very hot issue um, that's being discussed in policy circles mm -hmm. today uh, in about South Korean policy. Um, I think one of the major differences is thinking about how minority rights in these two cases are construed. So I think there's a really big difference. And if you look at the evolution in the German case is a really, uh, I guess, typical example in the academic literature. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the rights that were conferred to the migrant workers, including things like family reunification, was actually handed down by the courts. And mm -hmm. so it was something that was kind of legally made into existence. And that's not really something that's on the agenda in South Korean courts. And that's also not how policy really happens. It's it's very heavily bureaucratized in the South Korean case at this point. Migrant advocacy groups are relatively less powerful than they were 10 years ago in South Korea. Hmm. And so there's a lot of control right now in the bureaucracies, largely the, the Ministry of Justice and the Ministry of Family and Labor, or sorry, Family and Gender Equality. Tell us about what multiculturalism means in, in government discourse and official discourse. Right. So in English and in the West, a lot of times, I mean, Multicultural is actually kind of a contested term right now. And you have, you know, Angela Merkel in Germany saying it's multiculturalism hasn't worked right, as it had been failure. expected in Germany. It, it failed, right? That's exactly what she said. In the South Korean case, multicultural wasn't really a word. Actually, all of the words pertaining to migrants are relatively new. The mm. word imin was more likely to re refer to an emigrant, somebody leaving the country, as it was to somebody coming into the country, partly because it just... It just wasn't happening. The phenomenon was really, really ad hoc and, and, and relatively low levels. But I think the fact that the word didn't exist is also interesting because the concept wasn't there. It's the same thing with multicultural. When you think about, you know, negukin and wegukin, wegukin is, is really somebody that comes from abroad. It, it, ha it has to do with nationality, where were they were living, which even a Korean could be a wegukin by citizenship. In a sense, it's 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 kind of conflated when you er, complicated when you get national identity and citizenship involved. But a negukin could be a biracial person, but they're they're not fully Korean in Korean language. Mm. So I say all of this to 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 get to the point that damunwa or multicultural was a new word that was created. It doesn't. It's in, in many of the people that I'm speaking to in in the policy circles and within bureaucrats and researchers and migrants themselves, they say. Damunwa is really an awkward term. It's, it doesn't really understand. It doesn't really comprise this idea of multicultural or rather cultural diversity, mm -hmm. which it kind of con it connotes in the English language. And so right now, Damunwa 
law is actually more of a category than a kind of normative commitment as it is in, in English. And so Damuno specifically refers to the marriage migrants and their families. So any policy that's about Damunwa is really about Damunwa Kajok, um, multicultural families. So mm -hmm. it's one Korean, one foreigner, and their children. And I say this because it's ex explicitly not two foreigners and their children. Right. I should point out the irony of um, uh, the word Minjok itself being a uh, once, you know, 100 years ago, that was a neologism. Exactly, exactly. Uh, translated through Japanese exactly. from the German concept of folk, uh, something that Brian Myers brought exactly. up in one of his books there. So exactly. back then, Minjok was a new concept. Are we seeing da Minjok? Is that also a neologism that people are using now? Multiracial, multiethnic? Is I that a thing yet? I haven't heard it. I've, the only thing that I've heard was um, like Munhwa Dayongsan or cultural diversity. Right. And so I think it's it's a way right now, because there's a lot of criticism about Damunwa as both a concept, a category, mm -hmm. and a policy. There is some... Um, particularly from you know researchers, academic cir circles, as well as migrants themselves, for greater recognition of diversity, rather than this just being something that's different people who are assimilatable into Korea. Of course, this is an issue that's a, that's that's really on the floor of of every country's agenda right now. Immigration is a hot issue everywhere. It's just something that's very new for South Korea. And as you mentioned, the idea of minjok is a very modern construct mm. too. Yeah, I, I think uh, to come back to uh, assimilation, that's still very much the government uh, hope and policy. Policy, right, yeah. that uh, people who come here don't form their own cultural ghettos, that, uh, that they are supposed to assimilate into the Korean uh, ethnos. I think there, it depends on which group of foreigners you're talking about, ah. I think. Um, and it gets back to that kind of hierarchization in the sense of which, which foreigners are valuable to us and why. And so if you do look at government policy, particularly for these marriage migrants and their children, it is very assimilationist. It's about how to mitigate the kind of discriminations that they face, which are very, very real issues, how to help them you know, get the, the practical skills and uh, mitigate social discord mm -hmm. um, at, the, at the local level. At the same time, you do have some ghettoization of other communities. And I think that the Korean Chinese are one example of it. They're not necessarily part of this assimilationist policy. Rather, they're, they're kind of othered, especially in popular media. There's a kind of a vilification of it. If, mm. you think, if you look at a lot of Korean movies these days, gang members, a lot of them, it's, it's happening in Daedim or, you know, highly Chinese or Chinese-Korean uh, neighborhoods. Mm. And so I think that there's this popular, it's, 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 the, it's the refusal to assimilate certain groups. So, yeah, you mentioned that there are different types or different hierarchies of migrants um, from the marriage immigrants, uh, the Hwagyo, uh, the Chosonjok. What else is in there? What about these? Right, other? right. And, and I do use the term hierarchization in, in two ways, both in a policy sense, right? How does policy dealing with these? How is it creating these categories and providing different provisions, whether it's assimilationist or not? Or restrictions, um, and then on the other hand, kind of social perceptions. I think there's there's an interaction between that. So I, I do want to like caveat that the other groups that I think are popularly re relevant would be kind of Western. It would be the difference between an expat and mm -hmm. a migrant. <laughs> um, people that are working at larger companies, English teachers, university professors. Um, there's a lot of uh, racialization of these groups as well. They tend to be white coming mm -hmm. from Europe um, or coming from America with different racial backgrounds. There's not really a lot of programming in the kind of assimilationist sense for these groups. However, there's a lot of programming that's available to help them have a leave easier lifestyle. So I'm thinking in the case of Seoul City, there's this various Seoul Global Centers that deal with these differently. And, and it is really neighborhood by neighborhood. That's something that I've also done in my research is visited these. So if you go to mm -hmm. the Seoul Global Center near Jongno, yep. um, which is the, the headquarters, it has things like helping people open bank accounts, helping them start you know, um, create startups. Yep. You can apply for benefits to create startups. And so um, it's a different kind of integration rather than perhaps assimilation. But there are also language classes offered there, There's right? also language classes offered there too, yeah. And I, I don't know what the statistics are. I haven't seen the numbers, but I just get the feeling that in the, in the case of uh, largely, as you point out, white uh, Western expats, the number of those who stay beyond one, two, three, or four years is is very minimal. It's really low as well, and I think that that's, in a sense, it's a chicken and the egg. Is is policy or or choice? Is the is the idea that they are assimilatable, or because you know Westerners tend to only 
come here for a year or two by their own volition. The other group that I'll mention also that I think is relevant is foreign nationals who are co-ethnic Koreans. And we kind of just discussed this a little bit before, but yeah. it is, I think, important to think about, and this is what I'm doing in my dissertation, is thinking about how the South Korean government has actually dealt, had, had a longer history of dealing with foreign nationals they're just Koreans or biracial Koreans. And they've been doing that since the division of the peninsula. Yeah, we're, we're seeing, well, there's been a couple of um, tragic cases in the media in the last few years of people who are uh, ethnically Korean were adopted to, for example, America, but never received U.S. citizenship. That's right. And then yeah. after committing a, a crime, they were sent back to Korea, a nation where they didn't speak the language, didn't have the culture, didn't have a job or a social network or a family or any of these things, and are just basically expected to sink or swim. I mean, I think the Korean government was by no means prepared to receive and assimilate these people because there's so few of them and because they're such, uh, what do you call, edge cases, I suppose. That's right. The case of Korean adoptees in particular is, is, is something that I don't study. There are some excellent scholars out there who do. It's a very specific case because the Korean government, as you said, for a long time was a bit agnostic or hands off about these cases. And so it allows for a lot of gaps mm. to create the fact that they didn't, they had still had Korean citizenship in the first place is kind of a gap, right? It's a policy gap that those loopholes didn't get closed when they were adopted abroad. And so that's, that's another case that is quite complicated. I should point out also that there are uh, lots, lots more uh, Korean adoptees who come back to Korea um, and don't experience quite such uh, uh, problems there and, and get jobs here and, and learn Korean and get in touch with uh, you know, their roots. That's right. There's actually a lot of programs that will help make those sorts of instructions. And there's also government programs specifically to help Korean adoptees get scholarships for education in South Korea. So that mm. includes language training at language institutes, as well as uh, advanced degrees. Uh, has government policy changed towards migrants over the last 15 years? Do we see shifts when new presidents come and go or national assemblies? Are oh, elected? that's a good question. Yeah, there's actually been a lot of shifts. So um, the government is on its third five-year plan for foreigners. The first one was from 2003 to 2008. It's not necessarily um, a left-right issue because, as you mentioned before, Noh Moo-hyun really pushed this on the agenda. Right. And yet the South Korean conservative governments, both Im Young-bak and Park Geun-hye, had a lot of programming for migrants for, to you, to, for, in different ways. So for, there was a lot of interest in importing migrant labor to help the private sector. And there was a lot of interest in kind of more conservative circles to assimilate foreigners. And so it's it's interesting because it's a little bit different than we think about the right. political divide in And we should maybe. also point out that uh, the very first uh, elected National Assembly person who was not Korean born was Jasmine Lee who was part of the uh, the Grand National Party the Conservative Party. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I have actually had some Koreans say to me that uh, uh, the, the left-right conservative-liberal divide doesn't work in Korea the same way that it does in the West, because actually they say the people on the left are the more uh, nationally chauvinistic and would therefore be less likely to uh, appreciate a non-Korean coming into their party and, and standing for election, whereas the uh, the conservatives are less nationally chauvinistic in that sort of ethno-nationalist way. It's, it, it does kind of get to this idea of of who is maybe assimilatable. I think the Jasmine, and there hasn't been somebody since Jasmine Lee. No. Um, so I think it's interesting. I did speak with her during my research and she really, actually, she was able to push a lot of things on the agenda to mixed results. I think that the actual conservative party, my understanding is the actual conservative party buy-in for some of those issues was a mixed bag, as well as, as, as those on the left. And as you mentioned, the left can have a certain ethno-nationalist component to it. Certainly, the current government has a really complicated attitude mm. toward foreigners or foreign nationals. And I think that, you know, the North Korean defectors here are actually a, a part of that, too. It's the kind of complicated <laughs> attitude yes. toward those. But there's, you know, there's not really a lot of push from the Moon Jae-in administration. He laid out these 100 points. None of them have to do with immigration. Mm. And so it, it really is focused on, as I'm sure you've talked with many of your guests, the North Korea cooperation issue. Right. What, what about South Korea's policy towards refugees and asylum seekers? Right. Korea has two refugee policies. It has the North Korean defector policy, mm -hmm. and then it has a foreign non-Korean refugee policy. And as uh, many people know, last year, it kind of came to a head, the, the, the latter category with a group of Yemeni refugees 
um, landing in Jeju right. because of um, certain migration patterns and visa policies about Jeju in particular. Right, I think it was almost an accidental arrival. Wasn't it was. It? I, mean, it I, was. I can imagine if I was uh, uh, an, an Arabic-speaking Yemeni uh, and I was looking for a place of refuge, I would not automatically choose uh, the pork-eating, alcohol-swilling, non-Arabic-speaking Jejudor to go to. Right. It is in many of those cases. It was an accident. It was it was a country that they, they went to after another country. In many cases, it was Malaysia, and it, it it was it was such a hot issue in South Korea. I think that there were some particularly conservative politicians, local politicians, mm. who used it in a way, and 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 interestingly, also, well, not this has happened in the past, made alliances with feminist groups mm. for fear of these men coming from the Middle East ah. and branded them as a threat. And that then became a threat to men as well in, in, you know, by proxy. There's interesting data about this. I think that if you look at South Korean public opinion, there was a, I think it was a Gallup Korea poll that was done about last year, just a few months after this. And I think it was refugees in general. Should South Korea have um, a, a more welcoming refugee policy? And people were pretty negative about it or ambivalent. And then there was a South Korean sociologist who reframed the question because the questions themselves were being not explained. I think the idea of a refugee is something that's actually, there's a lot, a lot of knowledge about it in South Korea, um, who these people are and why do they, why are they coming here? It's not necessarily to find jobs. It's because they're escaping either humanitarian uh, issues, um, per- political persecution, violence. And so once the question was a bit more educating and that this was done first and then resurveyed, it actually showed that South Koreans were much more uh, tolerant Hmm. of refugees. And I think there's something interesting about that um, as well. Uh, now, a month or two ago, we had uh, Dr. Yi Sang-shin from the uh, Korea Institute for National Unification, or KINU, uh, and he discussed with me the results of KINU's most recent survey of South Korean attitudes towards North Korea and unification. And what was particularly striking was that uh, among both uh, the set of Koreans aged under 40 and uh, Koreans aged over 60, the desire to live peacefully side by side as two separate Koreas is actually growing more strongly. And this is despite the Korean government's consistent education that unification is the national dream and goal of all Koreans. So are you seeing any of this in your research? And what do you think about it? Right. I think I, I listened to that episode and I thought it was extremely interesting. The attitudes toward North Koreans and to North Korea in particular, that these are understood as different groups, right? Or these are understand as different uh, issues yes. or threats as they may be um, to South Koreans was particularly important, I think. The one thing that I, I will say is that it's it's really important, or the, rather, this, this survey showed how important it is that particularly younger generations are not necessarily seeing North Koreans as co-ethnics, or they're seeing them as co-ethnics, but they're different. They're mm. other. They're not necessarily brothers anymore. The way that I think particularly progressives in their middle age um, do see for a variety of reasons, and so this I, this it, it reflects this j- changing idea of what is. Korean identity. It's not merely this shared bloodline that spans the Korean peninsula. Um, and therefore, what follows is, is this mandate of unification. Rather, it's much more complicated. And the people living up north are actually a different people living up north. How does assimilation work uh, with regard to North Korean refugees living in South Korea? Well, that's a complicated question. I'm sure there's a lot of people that, particularly there's some great anthropologists doing work on this. The government policy is is one that does provide a lot of provisions for North Koreans. Things like some sorts of language training, just like the other, in the, in the, in learning South Korean, right? It, right. A lot or, of it's learning, or learning the foreign loan words Exactly, <laughs> English loan words in particular. Um, that's part of it. Education about um, the economic system, the political system, as well as, you know, economic stipends to help them resettle. So there's a lot of support for these groups. And a lot of that, again, goes back to the bureaucratization of a lot of these issues, I think. So that happens in a different branch of government than the the other programming for other foreigners. So there's some provisions being made. And yet, as far as social integration or assimilation is concerned, that's actually really complicated. And as I mentioned, there's some anthropologists doing some really great work looking at kind of the psychological and social issues, barriers that are mm. preventing North Koreans and South Koreans from responding well or integrating well to each other. There's, of course, some important exceptions, but I, but statistically, there's a lot of 
difficulty with North Koreans. Yeah, there was that very sad story last week of a uh, uh, a mother and, and young child who died apparently of either starvation or malnutrition in an apartment in Seoul, uh, and this despite you know, various assistance programs that were in existence to potentially help them if they reached out, but they didn't reach out and the government didn't reach out to them. So they fell between the cracks. And, That's right. Uh, There's and a lot of falling between the cracks. And as I understand it, many of the workers at the support centers for North Koreans across the country, they're, they're smaller support centers across the country, don't are, are social workers. They don't necessarily have a background in North Korean issues. Mm. And so they can't necessarily get around that difference, that psychological or sociological difference um, to, un- to, to predict these sorts of issues, to predict these sorts of falling through the cracks, as you said. So let's sort of talk about multiculturalism and where that intersects with North Koreans. Uh, recently, I was at an event and there was the CEO of the uh, Asa Nanam Foundation, and he's got a vision of North Koreans, South Koreans and non-Koreans or foreigners all joining together to create a shared future of Korea. And I thought that was interesting because I've never actually heard that being put forward by a Korean before. And I've long been interested in whether and how North Korean refugees in South Korea situate themselves along the spectrum from uh, they're Koreans just like us to we feel more foreign than South Koreans. So North Koreans feel Korean. They feel closer to South Koreans than any other foreigners. In fact, you know, if you look at research about the North Koreans living in South Korea, they do a lot of work or they they push back on the idea that they might be in any way similar to foreigners living hmm. in South Korea, to migrants living in South Korea, even though, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the social programming or economic benefits are quite similar. Hmm. The, South, the North Koreans living here themselves, they reject that because they are Korean and they're, they, they, it's, 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 there's a dissonance between that because there's also a, a recognition that they're um, the psychological recognition that there, there's a barrier to also fully integrating into South Korean right. society large, but they really reject the fact or the issue of foreigners. Hmm, that's interesting because I've also heard um, from some North Koreans themselves who said that uh, they find it difficult to create uh, rapport or bonds with South Koreans and that they sometimes find it easier to talk to foreigners about some of the experiences really? that they've been through. And then you find that there are some North Koreans who, after living in South Korea for a number of years, decide that it's actually better for that's them to right. move to a third country, right? So there's a, what they call secondary migration, those that decide to go either to England or to America or even to Australia because they just feel that South Korean society doesn't welcome them here. They can't hold down jobs for long periods of time. They're constantly right. being made fun of for their accents or different words that they use and things like that. So- That's right. I think that there's 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 probably a, a few things going on here. First, it's it's the 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 individual backgrounds and desires of those particular individuals. So the North Koreans who really desire to settle here and have a a strong ethnic identity and a strong interest in reunification. Perhaps they're less less willing to to maybe accept the foreigner population. At the same time, I will say that there's a lot of political correctness surrounding understanding difference between North and South Koreans, and so you get that from particularly South Korean public opinion polls that talks about North Koreans living here. And the your your interview with Dr. Lee also got to this this idea that there's something politically correct about accepting North Koreans and dealing with reunification that it is a national mandate, and yet actual attitudes might be a bit different. And I think in the case of the North Koreans, there might be a political correctness that they can't talk about certain hardships with South Koreans as they can with foreigners, mm. right? So there's that's interesting. Now, we still have a, a very small number, really, of, uh, of North Koreans. I mean, you mentioned earlier in the interview that there are now uh, more than 2 million registered foreigners living in South Korea. And it's up to 3% of the population. Right. North Korean refugees, we're barely at 30,000 right. total. That's right. Um, and that's to compare to the, the German situation. Every year from East Germany, there were more than 10,000 East Germans moving across to West Germany. So that's literally, this is the drop in the Han River. This drop of ink in hundred is thirty thousand North right, Koreans, right, right. Uh, but uh, yeah. So what I'm trying to lead to is that there's this Korean phrase that you hear sometimes in uh, uh, in discourse on unification. That's Dongjilsong Hwebok or uh, recovery of homogeneity. Uh, and I, I first read about this in Roy Richard Grinker's book around 1998, and and which he likened that to um, 
the, the tale of Sleeping Beauty, in, in which North Korea is like the Sleeping Princess, waiting for her Prince Charming to come in and wake her up from 70 years long of sleep. And after that, everything will go back to the way it was before then. Do you see that? Is that still a big part right. of, of, of South Korean discourse on unification? So first of all, I think uh, Professor Grinker's book is fantastic. As somebody who studied anthropology, he's an anthropologist, and right. as somebody who then studied anthropology in my undergraduate, uh, as, as my undergraduate degree, I think it's such an important contribution to understanding the way unification and the way North or South Koreans see North Koreans. It's a really important contribution and a, a really worthwhile title. Uh, Korea and its Futures by Roy Richard Grinker, 1997, 1998. I don't know if it's still in print, but you can certainly find copies on eBay and, uh, and Amazon. I got yeah. one off of eBay. Yeah, it's it. great. At the same time, it was published in 1998, yes. which was before any you know inter-Korean summit. Um, the levels of North Koreans and the awareness of South Koreans of North Koreans was really comparatively less, right? It was it was the way North Koreans were talked about. North Korean individuals were mm-hmm. talked about um, was really different at the time. And the way Korea's position vis-a-vis internationalism was different. Korea didn't really deal with foreign migrants at right. the same time, right? So the statistics that were, I, I mentioned earlier about Korea and its multicultural future is something that's part of political discourse now that didn't really exist in the past. And so I think that it's actually, that's an area that's really ripe for restudy because yes. I think that if you were to ask Koreans today, this idea of rewaking the the sleeping beauty in order to restore the bloodline, it's something particularly among younger Koreans who see themselves as much more cosmopolitan, as much less, um, as much more willing to engage with non-ethnic ideas of identity. It, it, you're going to become come with different, really drastically different results. I still see this phrase uh, Dong Jisong Huibok used uh, uh, now and again, especially in in official discourses on unification, and uh, and it makes me think that that a, a unification scenario would become quite difficult because they're expecting really all North Koreans to suddenly be just like South Koreans That's the right. day after unification, and we saw this a little bit, um, well, and to a certain extent still see it in uh, in German unification that there's this uh, thing, uh, this phenomenon that arose uh, called Mauer im Kopf, which is the wall in the head uh, that West Germans expected East Germans to just forget about the last 40 That's years, right. you're us now, right? That's so forget right. about how you lived and and, and your childhood rituals and uh, the school that you went to and all this. Thing. It's as if it never happened. You're one of us. Let's move on. And I, I get this sense in South Korea that there's that there will be a pressure to move in, in that direction as well after, uh, after any event that, that allows North Koreans to move in large numbers to South Korea. Yeah, I think it reflects like a really large dissonance between the idea of unification as an ideal and the idea of unification in practice. Mm. And I think if you ask South Koreans, everyday South Koreans, they'll recognize this difference, right? As Dr. Lee's survey results showed, most Koreans will say reunification is a plurality, at least say, you know, talk about um, reunification is still a national mandate. And yet there's a there's a lot of awareness that socially, economically, especially economically, it's going to be a big strain on society. And then I think it also is present in government discourse and policies as well, because you do have um, still this adherence, you know, the the constitutional mandate of reunification is largely built on this idea of reuniting with brothers. And yet there's also a lot of government policies and preparations um, for things like social integration, Mm. for how are we dealing with um, movement of peoples? How are we dealing with economic difference? How are we dealing with developmental difference between the two states? Um, there, there is kind of a, a, a double speak in a sense about these two things. And I think a lot of it is to maintain that political will, both within government and outside of government for reunification and efforts to um, deal with North Korea. And that, that's across the board, whether it's uh, a conservative administration or a, a, a left one. When, uh, when the Berlin Wall fell and the two Germanys united, the uh, former West German Chancellor Willy Brandt is uh, reputed to have said, but apparently didn't actually say, uh, jetzt wächst zusammen, was zusammen gehört, or in English, now what belongs together will grow together. Uh, do you see that uh, a unification scenario would be like that or would be much more messy and possibly even ugly in parts? It's going to be extremely messy. If you think about, I mean, it's it's it's... It's actually quite difficult, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, if you think about the different scenarios in which reunification or confederation or whatever sort of arrangement occurs, um, the, it, it, it's, it's, it's really path-dependent. There's a lot of, of routes it could go. But at the end of the day, if you think about the German case compared to the South Korean case, the levels of exchange between the countries and the 
the sheer um, time of which the two countries were divided, mm. right? There's generations have passed. Um, it's very few people have living memory of, of the United Korean Peninsula. Or rather, it wasn't even the United Korean Peninsula at the time because it was pre-states. Right. Um, it was Joseon. It was, and then it was empire, Japanese empire. You know, it was a colony. And so there's very few people with that memory. Right now, as I mentioned earlier, young South Koreans see North Koreans as different. They're, they're, they're North Koreans. They're not Koreans in the same way that their grandparents thought of them. And likewise, North Koreans have very little memory of, of living with South Koreans. And, and, and the way South Korea is portrayed in North Korean uh, uh, media and mm-hmm. by, the South, by the North Korean government, it really does other them in a way that, that, that serves that purpose as well. Now, you're um, almost uh, at the point of leaving Korea again. That's right. Yeah, at you, the end just of this caught month. Me. <laughs> you just caught me at the end. Right. Uh, do you imagine you'll be back here again in the future? Well, certainly. Certainly. So I what, do, yeah. <laughs> what draws you back? What gives you hope? I just, I mean, I first moved to Korea in 2008, and I lived here for five years consecutively. And, you know, something that just really captured me about South Korea is its dynamism, and yet its really strong adherence to a lot of tradition, whether it's imagined or real. Um, and I just find that, that 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 juxtaposition so interesting. And it's something that as somebody who's interested in politics, as a student of political science, you can study everything here. Yeah. And both in both North Korea and South Korea, it's just there's always something going on, whether it's about democracy and democratic consolidation, you know, social movements to impeach a president, mm-hmm. um, dealing with new ideas of national identity, dealing with an, uh, a threatening autocratic regime to the north. Um, what that autocratic regime, what are the terms of its existence and its history and, and its relations with its neighbors? It's just something that's infinitely interesting. And, and you know, in the process of, of all of this, when I first came to Korea, I've made such interesting and diverse friends along the way, Korean and non-Korean alike. It's never boring in Korea, is it? No, no, there's always something going on. Wonderful. Well, I wish you all the best with that. Where can people find you on the Twitterscape? Sure, I'm at Darcy Drought, D-A-R-C-I-E. D-R-A-U-D-T. And I have a homepage with the same with all of my analysis and audio clips like this one. Is that uh, DarcyDrout.com? That's right. Okay, wonderful. Thank you very much for joining us today, Darcy Drought. Thank you so much, Daco. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it for today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and consider buying a subscription to nknews.org where you will find the best and most up-to-date specialist specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea. You can save $50 on your first year's subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Our thanks, as always, go to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arius Dare, our post-recording producer genius who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, false starts, bodily functions, etc. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Unique Career Fund, for which we are extremely grateful. Thanks and listen again next time. Mm-hmm.